Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Care Patrol of Connecticut in New York is your number one partner for securing safe senior living options and navigating the senior care continuum. Their services are at no cost to you, and they guide you through the entire process. Visit www.carepatrolct.com for details. And welcome back to the show. It is estimated that 30 million Americans struggle with eating disorders such as anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. Uh, 90% of all eating disorders are typically uh, occur. They begin in adolescence or early adulthood. And 90% of cases are actually diagnosed before age 20. Fewer than 10% occur before the age of 10. But we know that eating disorders are very common among youth. They, they tend to be more common, some of them for girls more than boys, but not necessarily always throughout adult lives. But we know a lot of girls suffer from anorexia nervosa, which is a disorder where they stop eating, they control their eating, they get way, way, way too skinny, and sometimes uh, they die prematurely as a result of their organs being starved for nutrition. It is a complex disorder. It is one of the most difficult to cure. Uh, and our next guest, um, our next guest has a lot of experience in that. Uh, she is somebody who, Mary Dobson, who has spent her entire career with certified and certifications in eating disorder. She began her psychology career and research with the Connecticut Women's Health Project at Yale. She, um, has a career spanning over 20 years and served as the founding regional director to a leading national behavioral health corporation's East Coast populations, but she is operations, but she is one of the select practitioners nationwide to have received and held certified eating disorder specialist credentials through a particular association of eating disorder professionals. And she has been really relentless in her quest to try and get help to kids, parents, and families who suffer from eating disorders. She knows a lot more about this than your average practitioner, if there is such a thing as an average, average practitioner. But if you are somebody whose family or yourself has suffered with an eating disorder, you're going to want to pay attention to this. At 203-333-9422, you're welcome to be a part of it. Mary Thompson practices in Westport, Connecticut. Welcome to the show today. Hi, Mary. Hi. 
Hi, Lisa. How are you? Nice to hear from you again. It's very, very nice to hear from you. And um, so I wanted to ask you, Mary, if you have statistics and data, and I don't know how local they are, but let's go with Fairfield County or Connecticut. How many people suffer from the kinds of eating disorders, and I'd love you to define it, that you treat? Yes. Well, you know, Lisa, that's a really important question because you you mentioned anorexia nervosa, which is probably um, the eating disorder that comes to mind first for so many Americans when they think about eating disorders. And, uh, of course, there's also bulimia nervosa um, and binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder was added to the DSM in 2013. So prior to 2013, um, binge eating disorder wasn't recognized as an eating disorder, but it very much is. Um, and uh, and we, we see many people that are suffering from binge eating disorder who have uh, symptomology that's as disruptive to their lives as anorexia and bulimia. Um, something that also occurred, I think, post-pandemic, uh, you know, the adolescent female population um, literally doubled in terms of presentation of eating disorders. So we had a, a 50% uh, increase in um, ER visits. Uh, well, 121% increase in ER visits and a, and a 50% increase in hospital administ- wow. admissions among adolescent girls post-pandemic. Um, post-pandemic, numbers- not, wait, wait, not during the pandemic, but looking back on the pandemic? In other words, when did so they, they start to develop yeah. it? Go ahead. They, so so the, the pandemic was the, um, was we believe sort of the, you know, we have this expression in eating disorder treatment, the environment pulls the trigger. Um, because eating disorders are biologically based illnesses. Um, in fact, we can identify some of the biological roots of eating disorders as early as age nine. Um, so there are there's a very strong genetic component. Up to seventy percent um, is a genetic component. What do you mean and, by that? Uh, wait, wait, hold on, Mary. What do you mean yeah, by a genetic yeah. component? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, so people with um, with eating disorders generally, and and again, it's seventy percent, right? So it's there's also um, room for other causal factors. But people with eating disorders generally um, literally have a, a different brain configuration uh, than, than folks without eating disorders. So um, in, in previous years, you know, maybe um, 40 years ago, the, the thought around eating disorders was that uh, the factors must be purely nurture and clinicians would sort of go after mothers. <laughs> right. right and say, right. well, you know, your mother's fault. It's always the mother's fault. It's always, um, the, mother's it's always fault. the mother's fault. Always. Yeah. And so, um, and interestingly, you know, uh, in the past uh, 25 years, the research has been overwhelming that uh, actually the eating disorders are really brain based illnesses. So, um, for example, with anorexia, um, people, individuals who suffer from anorexia uh, most typically have um, insufficient serotonin. Um, and so there are these various uh, factors that are really very much mental health and psychiatric factors that are generally underpinning eating disorders. So wait and a minute, who, let me just, that's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So insufficient serotonin, is that something, because we know that most anorexia starts in your teen years or even your middle teen years, like, like 11, 12, right. 13, 14. Um, 
does that mean that during those years developmentally, they're not making enough serotonin in their brain? They don't have enough? What does that mean? Yeah, well, they're, they're not enough serotonin. And also, you know, serotonin isn't flowing properly um, from site receptor to site receptor. Um, and so what that can cause is, is rigidity and cognitive um, errors, thinking errors, um, negative thinking that then becomes sort of a belief system, right? Uh, and, and so that uh, rigidity is what we often see with folks with eating disorder. And sometimes it'll mm-hmm. present as uh, anxiety or depression uh, prior to the development of the eating disorder. So the eating disorder is sort of a way of coping with this uh, brain chemistry problem. Um, and so that's it's sort of symptomology. Do you do tests for people? I mean, do we have a blood test for people that shows how much serotonin people have in their brain? Do we have any tests, empirical tests? That's a great question. Yeah. So, so there, you know, we're at the beginning of having better testing. Um, There, there is a test called Dean site, for example, that can help people determine which SSRI or which medication could help them with a, a serotonin issue. Um, but the testing is not as far advanced, advanced as it needs to be. Is that a blood um, test so or I, like a, a, a brain scan? What kind of a test is that? There's, yeah, there's a, it's, it's generally like a spit test, actually, um, that wow. you can, you know, you can have done. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes we recommend that for folks that are, um, that are having a difficult time kind of finding the right psychiatric medication for them uh, because it can actually determine which medications would metabolize uh, better than others in in your system, um, but the testing has to come. I mean, we, we we still have so far to go when it comes to being able to predict uh, who is going to suffer from an eating disorder, right? So we do a lot of prevention work um, because prevention is so much easier than cure. You know, with with eating disorders, if we can get out in front of them. Um, and they're presenting younger and younger and more severe than than you know his, than historically. Um, if we can do that prevention work, then you know we can save uh, so much hardship later on. Okay, so that's really fascinating. So, if you th- if you're telling me, Mary Dobson, two zero three 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 nine four two two, that seventy percent, two out of three people that develop severe eating disorders where they're so rigid, they stop eating um, and it totally changes their lives. And does this also apply to the bulimia piece too, or strictly the anorexia piece? It does. So actually, um, and, and that's another thing that I think is so important you, you touched on. Um, so, so bulimia, yes, uh, brain-based, different, different um, type of, 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 uh, difference, right? And and then also with binge eating disorder. So all of these variations are brain based, but they but they literally are um, different differentials, right? So there's um, there's anorexia, and there's uh, a brain chemistry that could set someone up for anorexia and bulimia, and then binge eating disorder. But we also see um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is, you know, also called like extreme picky eating. Mm. And we see that often in young children. That can be a precursor to anorexia, but sometimes it's um, it's an eating disorder in and of itself where a child reduces their range of foods to a very narrow range. 
and, you know, perhaps they're eating nothing but white foods, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like or French white, fries. White bread. I've seen kids exactly, that do that. They right? only eat French fries. Virgin. I mean, I've seen kids like right, that. Right, yeah. right. And that that too is um, is is you know again it, it all goes back to that that biology, um, and and then the environment that pulls the trigger, which is you know the stressful circumstance, right? When the pandemic was that stressful circumstance for so many children, where it really did pull the trigger of. Um, the stress level being beyond our teens' ability to cope, and that was sort of a turning point. So the, that you know statistic that I gave you, that was during um, the pandemic that we saw that increase. But what's noteworthy is that those increases haven't haven't subsided. So the increase that we saw is um, is holding fairly steady post-pandemic, which is a curiosity, um, you know, for so many of us that, that work in this field. Um, we've also sort of done a better job, I will say, at identifying um, eating disorders that we typically would miss. And some of that is due to prevention work. Um, and some of it is due to the pandemic, I think, brought a lot of mental health issues to the surface. Um, we started talking more about anxiety and depression. We started screaming more. Um, we started paying greater attention to these teens and some of the stressors that they're under um, because we did see these you know, pediatric hospitalizations skyrocket. And so it, it really highlighted the importance of looking at this. Um, what we see a lot of, you know, typically uh, eating disorders were kind of called this sort of white female problem, right, or rich white girl syndrome. Um, but we see teens from racial and ethnic minority groups presenting with um, the same, if not more, oh, sure. eating disorder presentation sure. and, and males and also teens with larger bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, there's a new sort of um, designation, atypical anorexia. Atypical anorexia could mean that someone could be could be considered uh, by, you know, a, a a BMI chart to be overweight, but actually they are anorexic and they're restricting their food intake and they're engaged in um, in restrictive behaviors, in over-exercise or compensatory behaviors that's devastating to their day-to-day lives. And maybe that looks like gaining and losing large amounts of weight often, um, which has a profound medical impact. It's actually better to be overweight, significantly overweight, than to than to constantly yo-yo and gain and lose. So, um, Mary, because that's very me, hard on the body. Let yeah. me, yeah, let me just interrupt you, Mary Dobson. We, yeah. We're going to be right back. Um, I want to ask you to define what binge eating disorder is when we come back, and I also yeah. want to ask you about when obesity is and is not an eating disorder. Because if 40% sure. of Americans are obese, are we all suffering from an eating disorder? Or can obesity be teased out to some of those people do have one and others may not? That's we'll be right back question. with yeah. Mary okay. Dobson when we come back. We'll be right back. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We're talking with Mary Dobson, who practices therapy, who specializes in eating disorders. You can find her as a therapist in Westport, Connecticut. Mary, uh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, a little bit about what is binge eating disorder? You said it's relatively new, 2013 in the DSM. So what is it? Yeah. So binge eating disorder is um, is really the consumption of uh, of a you know profound number of calories. Typically, it's you know 700 plus plus calories in one sitting, multiple times per week. So it's sort of the uncontrolled um, and typically fast paced rapid consumption of often foods that are um, considered to be um, extremely tasty, salty, uh, you know, compelling foods, um, which we certainly have so much access to. We do. Uh, and binge, yeah. And, and binge eating disorder, you know, you asked a great question um, because really what we've learned over the past 25 years in, um, in eating disorder research is that you can't tell when you look at someone whether they have an eating disorder or not. Um, there are people who are um, medically considered to be obese, but are actually in incredibly great shape. That's true. Um, and, That's true. you know, that, that uh, could run faster than me and, uh, and, and feed themselves quite well and live a very good, balanced, um, healthy, and happy life. And uh, and then there are folks who have uh, binge eating behaviors that are underweight. Um, and so you really can't tell when you look at somebody visually um, what they're dealing with and what's happening for them uh, because of just the nature of how people are able to um, compensate. And so there are folks who are who are bingers, but they have a myriad of compensatory behaviors that they engage in. Um, to sort so of just disguise because, their binging. So just yeah. because you're fat, obese, whatever, your BMI is too, whatever, you're, you're, not, you're not happy with your body in the mirror, doesn't necessarily mean you have an eating disorder. But when does, when does something become an eating disorder and manifest itself in you being too heavy? Is that somebody who just chronically overeats and is addicted to food and feeds their feelings like the hungry heart? I mean, what what would you say... When, when yeah. is it that you have an eating disorder that manifests itself not in being too thin, but in too fat? What are the behaviors? Right, right. And, and you know, what, what you ask is, is such a complicated question, and I want to be fair okay. to it. Okay. Um, because, you know, we have this, uh, this saying in mental health, uh, health at every size. Okay. And, okay. you know, health at every size, yeah, it, it means that um, essentially – you know, a person can be healthy at every size that, you know, it's not that, um, you know, years ago, there was a lot of weight bias and weight discrimination. And people would go into a physician's office. And in fact, this still happens to this day. I think there are a lot of people that feel this way, that when they go to the doctor, um, the automatic assumption made uh, when they have a health complaint is, well, you should lose weight. You know, that's the first thing that the doctor will say. And so there are a lot of physicians that are really sort of, um, they're not, uh, perhaps they have a weight bias or they have a, a discrimination 
um, against individuals who are overweight. And they'll use that as sort of a scapegoat for a host of medical issues when, in fact, um, there, there's you know, more than likely something that's going on that is completely unrelated to that. And I think that people who are living in larger bodies often feel very misunderstood by the medical community or ashamed. Um, They often feel like they don't want to go get help for a medical issue or um, that they're going to be stigmatized or stereotyped if they express something. And so weight stigma has actually kept a lot of people who are technically considered overweight out of um, doctor's offices, right? And so it, it can have this sort of um, this uh, strange uh, reinforcing quality where if somebody is uh, stigmatized about their weight, they may be less likely to present to their medical appointments and take good care of their physical health I because they're ashamed of seeing their doctor. Right. Yeah. Mean, yeah. So we have to be so careful. And yet, on the know? other hand, and we yeah. do know... We do know that obesity is a contributing factor in high blood pressure, in some, in stroke, in certain cancers. So it, it is a, an inescapable reality that sometimes weight is a very important contributory factor. But I hear what you're saying that the converse may be true in many people's lives. They may have inadequate health care because they already have the weight on and they just don't want to go to a doctor. I hear it. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, and what we see often in children um, is that when children go to the doctor, particularly, you know, the child goes to the pediatrician and the child is technically um, on, you know, on a medical uh, chart overweight and the, the pediatrician indicates to the child or to the family uh, that the child is overweight. Um, statistically, you know, that child is, is actually much more likely to develop an eating disorder because of, so being overweight as a child, interestingly, is a risk factor for anorexia and bulimia, um, as well as binge eating disorder. And could uh, that because, mean because there's yeah. an early genetic component early on too that is not being uh, notified, treated, noticed? Is that possible as well? Yes, I'm sure that there's a that, that that's absolutely a piece of it. And I think that um, the other thing is that people typically freeze themselves at a certain age. So, you know, you often hear people say that if they were overweight in, say, third or fourth or fifth grade, um, even as an adult, when maybe their weight is uh, according to the BMI chart exactly. Mary, Mary, would you mind? We're going to run out in 30 seconds, but I'm really feeling like we've just touch the surface of this. Do you have time to go over the hour for another few minutes? I really want to keep sure. talking about this Sure, I'd be happy today. to. Yeah. Thank you. No, absolutely. We're going to keep you. chatting okay. with Mary Dobson about eating disorders. We haven't had one of these conversations in a long time. I think we're learning a lot, and I think it's a subject that most of us can relate to. I know I can. 203-333-9422 for ourselves and our families, so stay with us. We'll be right back. I felt like there was... So much more to talk about. So I've asked our guest, Mary Dobson, to stay over and continue to chat with us about the prevalence of eating disorders, the new definitions, and the new treatments. 203-333-9422. We will spin this off as an extended podcast today because, frankly, I think there's a real lot for us to learn. Mary, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for holding on. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you for giving time to this. Yeah, no, I really think it's critical. I do. And of course, it resonates with me because I would say that in my family, I am maybe the parent and the product of people with various degrees of eating disorders. And, you know, also in my extended family, my um, 
my married family. I mean, it's just all around me. You know, we, we don't seem to have alcoholism in our group. We don't have philanderous affairs. We don't have a lot of other things. Thankfully, we don't seem to have substance abuse, but of other kinds and narcotics. But the eating thing, the eating thing, and that's why I'm really interested that you said there's a genetic component because it does seem to keep cropping up. It does. Right, right. Well, and that's what we see. You know, we so often see, um, and and that's actually, that was uh, such a big motivation for me. Um, You know, as you mentioned, I I come from the the world of residential treatment. So um, many years ago, about a decade ago, I brought um, a national uh, behavioral health organization out here, a residential uh, organization out here to to Connecticut. And my work uh, over the past decade has been really providing family-based therapy and family-based services for eating disorders um, for that exact reason. You know, I I started Lift Wellness um, as as sort of a reaction to uh, seeing the gap in treatment uh, for people with eating disorders whose parents need support, whose siblings need support. Um, We often will see an adolescent with an eating disorder whose mom and grandma had eating disorders, right? And it's not that um, the mom and the grandma, uh, sometimes mothers and grandmothers and and women in the family or men in the family will blame themselves and say, did I cause this, right? Did I did I show bad behaviors with food and therefore, you know, sort of socialize this person into developing an eating disorder? And the answer is, of course, there's, there is a, um, a social aspect yeah, and a behavioral is. aspect to there food is. and eating yes. Yes. and diet talk and weight talk and body dysmorphia, um, body acceptance. Uh, all of these things are true. Um, but uh, there's also that strong genetic component. And so, you know, I often will say to parents that, you know, even if the parents, because we do see parents who have a very regular Um, typical relationship with food, and then they have a child, and they do everything right. You know, they talk about food appropriately. They're they're accepting of their bodies. They wear bathing suits in the summer, and they don't criticize the way they look, you know, in their bathing suits, and they don't comment on people's bodies, and and yet they'll have a child with an eating disorder, and they're so baffled, right? We did all the right things. Um, Why does our child have this problem? And, you know, that's when we, you know, can get into, okay, well, you know, this is a biologically based disease with an activating event and also, you know, temperamental factors. And for each different eating disorder, there are different coinciding temperamental factors. Like, for example, um, people with anorexia, uh, you know, in in brain scans and in long-term research, you know, we've discovered that people with anorexia have an abnormal sense of agency. What does that mean? So there, it means that they feel, um, they're people, they're individuals who feel overly responsible for oh. far more than oh. what it is that they in fact have control over. Interesting. Um, and so it's a particular disposition and temperament that makes somebody vulnerable to that particular diagnosis um, because their sense of control and their sense of what they should be able to control mm. um, and what's within their grasp to control is so heightened compared to peers. 
And what, what about those that engage in bulimia? Do they also have that heightened sense of agency? I remember bulimia being first. I, I, the first time I learned about it was from Princess Diana, believe it or not, years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there are these famous, you know, individuals who have suffered from eating disorders. Um, you know, Karen Carpenter, oh, of yeah. course, died of, of um, she actually, Karen Carpenter didn't die directly of anorexia. She died of refeeding syndrome. What's that? Um, and uh, so refeeding syndrome is, is one of the reasons why it's really important to have specialized care when you're recovering from anorexia, because um, essentially if you uh, are, are feeding someone, if someone's been restricting their calories and eating insufficiently for a period of time, and then food is introduced too quickly, so, so you know, someone is seeking treatment and the suggestion is, okay, well, let's increase these calories. You're eating 200, 300 calories a day. We're going to get you up to a normal amount. Um, and if that change is made too quickly, um, the body has actually adjusted itself to eating an insufficient number of calories and is sort of adapted there. And then when um, calories are increased suddenly, uh, refeeding syndrome can occur, which is a very complicated kind of series of, um, of events related to, you know, a potassium crisis. Um, yeah, it's and like the Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Some of them died right? because they, uh, some that's of them exactly died. Right. I know. Right. Well, and that's exactly right. There was actually a study called the Keys study, which was done, um, you know, on individuals that uh, did not have eating disorders, where uh, they were prescribed a low calorie diet. And uh, and then, you know, so the the thing that I think um, that you sort of teed off uh, is is that eating disorders, while they have this biological basis and they also have these temperamental factors and these social factors, um, the, the very act of engaging in eating disorder behaviors can also be very addictive. So um, when someone has been restricted of food for a period of time, um, the combination of that behavior and also the malnourishment that can take place uh, can actually cause chemical changes that yes. are um, aligned with uh, an individual who has an eating disorder. And so, so this, Mary, this study that I, we, yeah, yeah. you're such a fan of information. I could go on forever, but yes, I want to ask you this. Yeah. In your years of doing this, yeah. um, if you could please explain, first of all, is there hope for people? You know, do you feel like, have you seen people be successfully treated where even if they're not, quote, cured? Because I had a dear friend that I went to law school with and we're now in our sixties and we've had some heart to hearts over the years. And she told me, you know, Lisa, I've never been able to cure myself. I still count all my calories compulsively. I might look better than at other times, but I blame my, in her case, anorexia for the demise of her marriage and for parenting in a way that caused both of her kids tremendous distress. And, um, and she she says, and now when I say blame it on, it's all part of a whole thing. But her point is that even though she had this extraordinarily amazing career, helping other people, a giving volunteer, active in her community, this disease has dogged her her entire life. And I just wonder, is there hope for people? Can they have a life where they get past this in some way or learn to live with it? That's a great question. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak personally. You know, I um, I myself was diagnosed actually when I was a child, and uh, you know, spent many years seeking recovery. Um, and I, it's been now twenty years of um, you know complete 
you know, I call it abstinence, complete, uh, you know, absence of, of uh, eating disorder. Um, and interestingly, you know, that experience really weighed upon my desire because I was pre-law in college and I switched my major to become, a, you know, going into psychology and went all the way through um, really with the the hope of being able to more effectively help people than um, I had been helped because, you know, it took me seven years to get effective treatment uh, for my eating disorder. And uh, what I found is that, you know, because eating disorders are, they are a mental health condition, um, but they also have a physiological, they have a physical component, they become a mm-hmm. physical problem. Sure. Uh, and they're also a family problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, treatment really has to involve those ingredients. And most of the time, it doesn't. Uh, and so that's sort of why they're, you know, we don't, we have an absence of eating disorder specialists. Um, and it, it's very important when somebody is diagnosed that they get specialty care right away, um, as opposed to, uh, it, say, you know, going to a generalist um, and perhaps, you know, making uh, because time is sort of money, right? So you're 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 getting worse, and your eating disorders progressing as you're in quote unquote treatment. So there's the illusion of working on the problem, but not actually the results, right? And not actually the progress that needs to happen. Um, and so that's what what we see a lot of, where people have sort of bounced around, and they've they think that they're dealing with it because they may be talking to someone, but um, but you know they may not be in specialized care. They may be with a general therapist who's well intentioned but doesn't have the expertise. Um, and so, is and your so, answer to that in short that with the right combination of supports, people can get better because you got better? I, I absolutely believe so. Yeah, I, I do. I, I believe that, um, like uh, like all other mental health conditions, you know, like um, like asthma, like diabetes. Um, you know, eating disorders can be uh, effectively treated and and managed. Um, what what has to happen is that the mental health conditions, you know, namely uh, what we most commonly see, uh, anxiety, uh, depression, sometimes obsessive compulsive tendencies, um, uh, sometimes trauma, uh, relational issues, self-esteem, body image issues, all those things have to be addressed. Um, and so an eating disorder can be effectively uh, managed as long as the person is willing to do the work of looking at themselves holistically mm-hmm. and addressing any underlying issues that may be necessitating uh, that kind of symptomology. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big part of the, the work that we do at, um, at LIFT and at LIFT Teen and Parent Wellness Centers, working on uh, the psychological underpinnings, uh, the psychiatric piece, the family component, as well as the dietary component. Do which, most you know, insurance is so plans cover, Mary Dobson, do most insurance plans cover the work that you do? So, you know, there's actually a, a huge battle in um, the country right now with um, many insurance plans, and this is a whole different segment. Uh, there's something called parity, uh, which uh, you, you may have heard of. You I know, do. Mental I know health my Mental Par- Health Parity Act. I know it very well. Chris Dodd, yeah. our senator, is the one that pushed for passing it, by the way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we're, you know, in Connecticut, um, you know, we're fortunate. We have, you know, some really great, uh, some really great 
advocates working on this. Um, but, you know, nationwide, there is definitely an issue with regard to we've had to fight. We've had to really fight okay. uh, to. And, and sometimes, you know, what I've noted, uh, and this is happening across the country, I hear from colleagues, um, you know, the insurance companies are, um, you know, are, are failing to compensate the, these providers uh, for these services. And, um, you know, because of the lack of parity, particularly for eating disorder recovery, which is, like I said, I mean, it's a, it's a mental health condition. It's a physical sure condition. So it should sure absolutely is. be covered by health insurance. Yeah. Um, Mary Thompson, it must be. Yeah. thank you very much. Uh, you can yeah. definitely give our audience your phone number if they want to reach out to you or an email address. How can they find sure. you? Sure. Yeah. So my phone number is, um, is 203-908-5673. Um, and our practice is in Westport. And in fact, if anyone is, is wanting to um, to pop in and get a tour, we're actually having an open house tomorrow from 11 to 1. We'll have, you know, food and refreshments and things like that. And uh, it's an annual thing that we do, just sort of like an open house and, and luncheon. Uh, so uh, our, our practice is at 8 Myrtle Ave in Westport. Um, so all are welcome to attend. Yeah. Thank you very um, much, Mary. Yeah, my pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you. And thank you for highlighting this important issue yeah, near and dear really to my heart it. very very yeah. informative very important thank you so much therapist absolutely Mary appreciate it All have right. a wonderful day lisa take care Bye. we'll be right back hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 